good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows, Thanks be to God. For those of you who are standing, you may be seated. Thank you very much. And I neglected to remind you of that as well. So when no, some one of our quirks as a church is, uh, is um, we just, I mean, we, we just cannot shut up about this book. We, we try and integrate the Bible into everything we do because we understand what we need are these words. And often we'll invite you even to stand out of reverence for them, which I neglected to this week, because we understand that these words are the words we need, the words that hold authority over us. And so today I would encourage you, please do keep your Bibles open. If you do not have a Bible, um, please do take that as a gift from us. You can also look um, at the Bible um, on your phone. Just don't surf TikTok while you're on there. Um, And uh, so uh, we are going to be in Psalm 16 this whole morning. I hope you'll keep your finger on the passages because you don't need another TED talk from, te- from Evan. You just, you need God's word. That's what we need today. And so um, I'm going to give you my main point today, which we hope every week is the main point of what the Bible wants to hear, have us hear, the author's main point, right up front. So what it, it's that joy is what you'll get if God is what you want. Let me say that again. Joy is what you'll get if God is what you want. Full, lasting joy. And that's the kind of joy that many of us long for in our life, but I I have to tell you, I've been a pastor long enough to know that not everyone comes to church for the same reason. Definitely not for joy. Not everyone comes seeking God for the same reason. You know, some just want to, and I think some of us are in this category, just get a spouse off your back. Or you want to make God a bit more happy with you. Some come because it's just what we do and what we've always done. We can't imagine not going to church. Still others come because they find perhaps the teaching intriguing, or they want to get their life back on track, or they hope to get maybe a significant other out of all of this. And this And still, others of us are not sure how we ended up in a place like this, other than the fact that someone, or perhaps God himself, dragged us here. But how many of us come because we're looking for joy? We go fishing to experience 
Joy, I don't really, but we buy a new outfit or a motorcycle for Joy. We uh, scroll through Instagram uh, for Joy. We watch Hamilton. We go on vacation. We ride roller coasters. You eat at Jay's Pizzeria or read Lord of the Rings. Uh, maybe that's just me. For Joy. These are all the things that we do for Joy in our lives, but who comes to church for Joy? Even those who might consider ourselves Christians, I suspect many of us go to church, read our Bibles, or pray in order to get something from God. We see obedience as kind of a necessary discomfort so that God will come through for me at the job interview, or at least he won't make my life more miserable than it already is. Would you believe me, though, to say that if I said that the point of the Christian life isn't just obligation and duty, that the point of a life devoted to God is joy? The Bible itself tells us that Christianity is worth your time. It's worth even your blood, your sweat, and your tears, precisely because it leads to happiness. Not the kind of happiness, of course, that shifts and changes um, based on circumstances, but real, robust, emotional happiness nonetheless. That kind of enduring, rooted, unfiltered happiness is what the Bible says we were made for. The kind, the, Bible, the kind of happiness the Bible calls joy. I realize that in saying the Bible is about our joy, even in its requirements, even in its rules, some of us just could not disagree more. I mean, I've talked with enough people to say that who are not convinced, even many Christians, that the rules could be related to their joy. I think about every couple, for instance, that I've asked to stop sleeping together before they get married. I remember the, I think particularly of the last one that I spoke with, I think the guy wanted to straight up punch me in the face when I said that. Religion, so far as we see it, Christianity included, we see as just about ruining our fun. They are about keeping us back from what we really want in life, about squashing our desires. Because supposedly it's good for us. Like a, can, like, a, like a parent who tells the kid he can only have three pieces of candy. It's why so many of us have so little time for religion. It's why you may have given up on it long ago. The thing is, is while these assumptions are partly true, they are mostly false. Christianity uniquely doesn't just ask you to deny yourself. It does so because there is happiness objectively more lasting and more satisfying in store for you. According to Jesus, following him, it will require you at some point to kill some sort of temporary happiness along the way. But we do so precisely because Jesus says that death to self is on the way to life. That sacrifice is the, on the way to happiness, real, robust, emotional happiness. Joy is what you'll get if God is what you want. Now, I can't just say that, however. I can't just make that claim. We need to go about proving it. We need to look at what the Bible actually has to say. So we're going to dive into Psalm chapter 16 in three parts. We're going to talk about the proof of joy, the problem of joy, and finally the promise of joy. You ready to get to work with me? So I hope you, again, will be in Psalm 16. We're going to start in the first few verses, but before we do, you know, um, uh, years ago, one of my friends was in a dating relationship, and we were talking about it over a cup of coffee. Um, it's tough to imagine back in those days, you just openly 
hung out in coffee shops, right? I'm longing for those days again, but we were talking about this relationship, and for months he had been in turmoil about what he should do. Um, After all, so much about the relationship from the outside made sense. They had lots of things in common, they had close friends, they were able to talk about important things together, their career career fields, they complemented one another um, in terms of long-haul dreams and ambitions, and she was cute. Yet even so, it was clear from my friend that he was really unsettled about the future. After going back and forth for a while, I asked him, bro, do you enjoy being with her? You've given me a lot of reasons why it should work. But outside of the physical side of things, do you enjoy her? You're not trying to recruit an employee or tax broker. Do you like being her friend? All of us, we want to be wanted in relationship, don't we? We want to be loved for more than our resume or our physical features. We want to be enjoyed as we are. Our relationship with God, it turns out, is no different. But when it comes to our relationship with God, I fear many of us not only don't experience joy, but we feel bad desiring joy, wanting more from it. After all, we would argue that obedience matters whether we feel like it or not, right? Uh, Certainly. I mean, we have certain obligations to God. I have certain obligations to God regardless of my current energy level or emotional state. Just like I can't tell my kids, uh, sorry guys, no playtime with dad tonight, or sorry honey, I can't stop by the grocery store. Dad's just not feeling it. At times, in fact, more often than not, obedience takes some serious willpower, doesn't it? Maybe it's just me. I don't always feel like doing what I should. But Is it so wrong to want to want to obey? Is it so wrong to want to want God? Is it so wrong to want joy? No, in fact, God wants to be enjoyed. In fact, he says in verse 9, he wants us to say with David, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. And in Psalm 16, we find a picture of someone who's uncovered this, who experiences this kind of joy and finds that kind of joy in God himself. Let's look at um, three different proofs, not five, three different proofs. First, David considers God to be his strongest loyalty. Right off the bat, uh, David describes God to be his strongest loyalty. Now, again, this psalm is all about joy, right? It, it looks, this is what, what it looks like and sounds like to have joy in God. That's what we're reading. And look at what verse, uh, verse 2 says, again, about David. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. But what's the very first sign of joy? Loyalty. Not just to God, though, but to his people. Now, I know for a fact that many, many people find this idea enormously strange. Not just that we would be loyal to God, but be loyal to the people who confess God, the people who call themselves Christians. I don't know how many times after all I've heard this phrase. See if you can help me finish it. I love Jesus, just not the church. I hope you didn't say a person's name after that, okay? So, um, it's interesting. If you read your Bible close enough, you're going to find that God's people have always been a messy, broken bunch. 
In First and Second Corinthians, for instance, uh, where you find that the early church, the church as soon as it was born, was full of division, selfish, sexual, selfishness, sexual sin, and even lawsuits. It doesn't matter where you go, people in every local church are messy and broken. But over the centuries, did you know that it was almost impossible for Christians to conceive of their relationship with God apart from the church? It is until the last century or so when Christians have found, I think we would all say from experience, more and more permission to find Jesus on our own terms, to give the church the stiff arm. Perhaps it's our love for independence, our distrust for authority, but many Christians today, including many who consider themselves serious Christians, not only are uninvolved with the local church, but they, they're intent on keeping it that way. At some level, honestly, it does make sense. After all of us, so many of us have been hurt by religious people in some powerful ways. Some of the deepest wounds have been cut by people who claimed a love for God. Maybe some of the people in this room have dealt those blows to you. In fact, I don't care how healthy a congregation is. I don't care, no matter what church I have served in, it's only a matter of time before Christians hurt other Christians. It's only a matter of time even here before I disappoint you or fail you in some way. Perhaps I already have. I don't mean to discount a Christian's hypocrisy or my own failings. I want to be better than I am. But it is to say that being a long-haul part of a local church is hard. It requires patience, it requires forgiveness, and it requires a lot of hits to your preference and your ego. Why then would David speak so highly, not just of God, but of God's people, especially when we come to find out that some of these same people would turn on him and hurt him personally. Why would he speak so highly of God's people? Because of who they belong to and what David knows God is making them into. I want to look at that term specifically of saints. Now, some of us hear this in um, a rather mystic way, as, this, as if this is kind of a separate class of believers who have some sort of special access to God, especially if we were raised Catholic. But the Bible, I, you need to know, never uses saints in that way, and never uses the term saints in that way. In fact, saints is perhaps a synonym for Christians, a synonym for God's people. It's used as a describer of those who belong to God. But it's not just a synonym, it's a, it's a tremendously important synonym. It, the term literally means holy ones, holy ones. This doesn't primarily actually refer to their conduct, although Christians will begin to demonstrate the effects of the gospel in their life. They will begin to live differently because of their faith in Christ. It definitely doesn't describe their uh, kind of a, well, uh, it doesn't describe a kind of holier-than-thou attitude. Holy ones refers to the nature of the relationship that God's people have to God himself. David knows that these men and women are holy because they belong to a holy God. They are set apart by this God as special to him. And he has set them apart, to, therefore, to one another. I realize you may not have 
if you're a part of this local church and we call ourselves a family, that's what the Bible says, is that Christians belong to a new family. I realize you may not have picked uh, each other to be part of your family, and there are some in this room who may not have picked you to be a part of their family, uh, let alone me. But if we are really God's holy ones, set apart to him and to one another, if God is the one who has done this, then God is also doing something supernatural in the lives of those around you. And he has given you a front row seat to what he is doing. Here's what's so powerful if we believed in God's promises of what he does in his church to those who are actually practicing Christians is you get to see God show off in the lives of the people in this room. And they get to see God show off in you. You get to see God's promises played out in Deb and Nick and Teresa and Shirley and Nate. And you have the privilege of pointing it out when it happens. God has given you this family as a good gift and as, if you can believe it, one of the primary means of finding your joy in him. That means for all our self-protective measures, particularly in these last generations, of trying to conceive our relationship of God on our own terms, in isolation, keeping ourselves safe from the people who who would hurt us, we are losing out on joy itself. God has not only made us for worship, but to worship among a people, a people he chooses. And he is more merciful and wise than we are. He has made you to belong in a a substantive way to his church. Not to the church as you remember it. Not to the church of the glory days. Or to the church that you might watch online to the present, actual people of this messy, broken local church. Do you consider and call one another excellent? Are you loyal to the people that belong to this church with you? Are are you willing, then, to seek forgiveness and to forgive, to build and to to be built up? Are you willing to do whatever it takes that we might experience joy together? Distancing yourself from church folk might protect you from some wounds, but you lose joy in doing so. Someone who finds their joy in God will also find their joy among his church. But I've gone too long on this one. We need to move to our second point. David also finds God to be his greatest treasure. In verse 5 through 6, David moves his gaze from the horizontal to the vertical, and he uses some really important phrases uh, that honestly may be a little lost on some of us. Uh, We need to, uh, in order to understand this, um, I know I'm going to nerd out with you for a little bit, we have to understand a little bit about ancient real estate. Now, I know showing up to church to learn a little bit about real estate is not probably what brought you here this morning, but when Israel first settled in this land that they, uh, that God gave them. God broke up the land, and he apportioned uh, out to almost every tribe in Israel. Here's why this matters, is that every family would receive land, and in, in, uh, in just clear terms, land meant income, land meant security, land meant a stable footing, not just for you, but for your kids, for your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. This was the assurance that you needed that life was going to work out. This was the good life. To have land was to have a future. Again, almost 
every tribe received land because one was left out, the tribe of Levi, a tribe responsible for the priesthood. God gives the reason for this to Aaron in Numbers 18. Why did they get no land uh, in verse 20? You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. God says, you don't need an inheritance because I am your inheritance. Doesn't this seem a little bit like a raw deal to you? It's maybe a little bit like that couple that says love is more important than money. Yeah, try telling that to the landlord. How would you feel if you were a Levite? Would you feel a little gypped? After all, do you ever make comparisons with others wondering, God, how is it that they get that kind of life when they don't seem to care about you at all? Well, I, someone who follows you, seems to only get the scraps. Have you ever thought to yourself, God owes me more than this? But God is getting at something extraordinarily important in Numbers that David picks up on in Psalm 18, something that we often get backwards. First, God loves giving good gifts. After all, friends, God didn't need to make a Missouri sunset look the way it does. Or that cheesesteak to taste the way that it tastes. Or sex to feel the way that it feels. Or an ocean to move you, or a Grand Canyon to move you in the way that it does. But he did. God didn't need to give us fall colors or afternoon naps or bacon. Can I get an amen? I mean, even you vegans and vegetarians out there know that soy bacon is just not the same thing. God didn't need to make these things, but he did. He didn't even need to give you a safe home, a full stomach, or the strength to rise from your bed, which we need to remember that not everyone enjoys, but he did. Why at one level? Because God loves to do so. He delights to give good gifts. God isn't a sovereign spoil sport. He isn't an almighty curmudgeon trying to ruin your fun. He came up with the very idea of fun, the very idea of pleasure, and loves to share it with his creatures, even those who never acknowledge his existence. But there's an even more important reason that every treasure, every good thing is made to point us to the one who has made it. Every true Every beautiful, every good thing is made to point us directly as a neon sign flashing brilliantly of the one who is true, good, and beautiful himself. This is why a Christian is actually able to uniquely enjoy good gifts. They don't have to be spoil sports and curmudgeons themselves. They don't need to be grumps everywhere they go. They can rightly enjoy good gifts from God. We can high-five over a burger with blue cheese and bacon. I mean, you can, okay, maybe not right now with COVID, but you can spend an afternoon in a good book. You can turn up the volume on your stereo. You can sit and stare at the sky at night. A Christian is easily edified and quick to be thankful. A Christian can enjoy good gifts, but it's important that they can do so without being consumed by them. A Christian can praise God for good gifts without living for them or collapsing when they are taken away 
a Christian can say with Job, God gives and God takes away. Why? Because we recognize, a Christian recognizes that God is our chosen portion. And even when our lot seems small, we call it pleasant. Because when we have him, we have all things. Third, David finds God to be his trusted counselor. Verse 7, I want to read, actually. If you want to look there again, I'm going to read this one more time. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs me. Let me ask you, are you facing any difficult decisions right now? Maybe it's just me, but it feels like life is a series of difficult decisions, isn't it? Any decisions you have no idea what to do or where to go? We have close friends in our lives navigating moves, job changes, job losses, health dangers, marriage issues, and parenting crises, and that's just the conversations I've had this week. Some of the most important conversations I have with you everyday friends are about the decisions that you are facing, some of which have no clear and right solution. Can I fill you on a secret? Sometimes, I don't know which path you should take. I don't have a printout of your life plan. I don't have the red phone to God. I'm not a huge fan either of making decisions by putting out your fleece or waiting for a peace in your spirit or opening your Bible at random. I think sometimes God allows us to face decisions that overwhelm us. He allows us to sit in those kind of decisions so that we can learn what verse 7 and 8 are teaching us. That phrase, in the night my heart instructs me. This is describing the kind of night in which you cannot sleep, where your mind seems to work on overdrive, where you can't start, stop thinking through the what-ifs. You ever been there? Sometimes the weightiness of a decision weighs on us not because we lack faith, but because it is a significant decision and because we shouldn't take it lightly, because we should be weighing the options and consequences. When he says, my heart instructs me, in other words, that is saying, my heart schools me. His conscience is rebuking him, teaching him. It is forcing him to, to face and to think through hard facts. Again, I think many of us have been there, but one concern uniquely sits on the front of David's mind, doesn't it? Did you catch it? Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, David has set God at the forefront of his mind. The primary questions this kind of person asks when facing decisions like this, when their mind is kept awake at night, instead of asking first and foremost, what makes the most sense? How do I stand to benefit? Or who might this impact? This kind of person asks first and foremost, what brings God the most glory? In light of who he is, and what he has asked of me. How can I best use my days to bring him honor, to bring him pleasure? This person rolls decisions over and over again in prayer, praying with Jesus, hallowed be your name, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This kind of person listens to the Lord's counsel because it is the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's righteousness they are after because the Lord's desires are their desires. This turns out that, then, that, that this kind of joy uh, described in the psalm has a kind of clarifying power in our decisions. It makes certain decisions much easier. Cer- certain decisions you might face, and you could go one of two roads, and you both see them, see them bringing God glory. One may be wiser than the other, but you can freely make them knowing that God's not going to leave you in the dust saying, well, you made your bed, now sleep in it. There are certain decisions when you're making them for God's glory, you can make a decision for what seems best, what the council seems to say is best and wisest. But then there are other kind of decisions that are much more difficult. In fact, this kind of joy may lead you to make decisions that confuse and frustrate others. They may not seem to make the best sense on paper. You might even find yourself disappointing your own ambitions and dreams. But if the Lord is your counselor, if you have set his fame, not your comfort and reputation before you, you can take the same comfort as David did. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This does not mean that God blesses all of our plans and desires. Hardly. But when you allow God's honor to orient you like a compass, or his character to hold you like an anchor, you shall not finally be shaken because you have him. I have to say with that, and this is a bit for free, some of us have, are worried if we make a decision that, again, God is going to leave us behind. Some of us even made decisions that we look back and regret. Decisions that we feel like we, we really messed up and God's waiting us for us to finally get our act together. That cannot be further from the truth. A sovereign God who is our counselor is our counselor presently. A God who is for us, even when we make really, really bad choices. Some of us need to rest this morning that even now, if we have him, God is for us. God secures us. And God will direct us in what comes next, even if it is difficult. God is not waiting with arms crossed for you to come back to him. A sovereign God abides with you. He knew what he was getting himself in with when he chose you as his own. But that's for free. Verse, uh, this gets to our second part, the problem with joy, the problem with joy. I've mentioned that before I have had uh, difficult conversations, again, with people, with couples who um, uh, are, yeah, about their sex lives. More often, I have to tell you, than I want to talk about, and some of you that surprises, some have said, Evan, one of the things about your preaching, you seem to mention sex every time you preach. I hope that that's not, it just, it just seems to be a present cultural issue, all right? So often from professing Christians, I have to have these conversations Um, And I say professing Christians because sometimes in talking about their sex lives, it becomes clear, perhaps for the very first time, that even though they said their lives belonged to God now, that they want to turn from how they have dealt with their sin to how Christ deals with their sin, they aren't so sure that they want to give God that. That feels way too hard. That surely is something that they cannot lose. And And then they ask, why would God even want that? Why do you want me to give that up? After all, doesn't he want me to be happy? Over time, I've seen some get very upset when we start pressing in about those issues. What started then with a conversation about sex becomes a conversation about whether or not God can be trusted at all. Notice verse 2 with me. 
and the two statements God, David makes to God. Number one, you are my Lord. And number two, I have no good apart from you. Do you know that these two statements are related to one another? You cannot say one without saying the other. I want to point out something some of us might have missed here and takes close attention. Did you notice that every other time in the psalm, Lord, the word Lord, when it appears, it appears in all caps, except for in this one. Here it appears, the first letter is capitalized, the rest are lowercase. This is not just, I'm not just uh, pointing out minutia. This isn't a typo. This is because the lowercase Lord here refers to something other than the personal name of God. This word refers to something more like a master or ruler or king. David is confessing that God is the king over every single part of his life. And he understands that means, if that is true, there is nothing that David can keep back for himself as his own. He is entrusting every relationship, every decision, every ambition over to God's authority. The only person that can entrust God with that kind of oversight, I have to tell you, is the kind of person who completely trusts that God has their good in store. The only person who can say, you are my Lord, is the same person who can say, I have no good apart from you. Flip this around, though. This means that no one can claim that God is their good, that God is their joy, that their hope is in God alone, who does not also call God their boss. The reason is, when we hold something back from God, we are functionally saying, God, you cannot be trusted with this. My happiness is best found on my terms, not yours, thank you very much. But more importantly, it goes even further than that. So long as we have something that is, uh, we are keeping back from God, that thing actually becomes our God. When push comes to shove, it is not God that we want most. It is whatever we hold back from him. It is that thing we must have. It is that thing is the one thing I need to be happy and that's the one thing that God himself stands in the way of me getting. That thing becomes my God. So often we live for what we might call the joys of God's hand. The joys of God's hand. The things that God provides. Reputation, comfort, control, family, success, stability, or pleasure. The thing is, is our attention is, oft, is so often consumed, not with the giver, but with the gift itself. But the thing, even when we take these things and say, I need this to be okay, this is the one thing I want for life, and we orient all our priorities, all our money, all our relationships upon achieving it. The problem is, is that thing, no matter what it is, if it is not God, it cannot come through on what it promises, not for long. And it makes me into a monster along the way. It turns people into a means to an end. That thing cannot come through on what it promises. But more importantly, in seeking anything else for our supreme joy, even if it comes from God's hand, we are going to lose out on joy entirely. Sooner or later, verse 4 puts it this way, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Have you ever gotten what you've longed for, you've worked for your whole life and been disappointed? Or see how quickly it was robbed from you? 
or lived your life in perpetual discouragement and disappointment because it seems you will never achieve it. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. We have to assume David himself was tempted to compromise, just like us, to live only for the joys of God's hand. After all, these joys are quick, they're easy, they offer powerful pleasure and immediate security. It's why David slept with a woman who was not his wife and killed her husband. So what keeps us from making the joys of God's hand our God's? It's not by locking ourselves in a monastery or refusing to enjoy good things or pretending that our desires are not there. The only thing that keeps us from making the joys of God's hand into our gods that allows us to enjoy these smaller joys on God's terms is knowing a joy that is even more satisfying and secure in the end. One that is so precious we could say no to all others. What keeps us from worshiping the joy of God's hand? Knowing the joy of God's face. Knowing what David means when he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy leads to our third section, the promise of joy. I've used this illustration before, but I just find it to be so powerful, and I know that it steps on some toes, so forgive me. In her book, Gay Girl, Good God, Jackie Hill Perry, describes her experience of gender confusion and her once wholehearted embrace of her homosexuality, something which she says felt more natural to her than heterosexuality ever could. But more importantly, she describes what it came, what, how she came to find wholeness that she was seeking in Jesus. Early on in the book, she describes the day after she came to faith in Christ, in which a beautiful young woman entered the checkout line where she worked, and like clockwork, her desire rose up in her. But, she recounts, I also wanted something else, God. Wanting God over a woman, she says, was an entirely new experience for me. It wasn't even something I considered as being part of, a, of Christianity, let alone the Christian. It seemed to be the religion of just duty. I've met so many disciples who preached more of sin than joy, whose eyes were stuck in a constant state of solemnity, clenched teeth and endless fascination with holiness. Why haven't they ever mentioned the place happiness had within righteousness? Or how the taking up of the cross would be the practice of obtaining delight. Delight in all that God is. Even their Savior had this kind of joy in mind as he endured the cross. So why haven't they set their focus on the same? In their defense, they were not to blame for my unbelief. I just wonder if they would have told, if they would have told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they told me about the horridness of hell if I would have burned my idols at a faster pace. powerful. Yes, God, there's no coincidence that Jesus says, in coming to him, it will feel like death. All of us will find some of our desires, the things that we most want, will have to die along the way. There are things that we, would have to, we will have to give up that feel too hard to lose, and the same was for Jackie. When she chose no longer to act in response of her uh, attraction to the same sex, it felt like death. But there was a reason why she could trust this God because she knew that, jo that joy, true, lasting, full joy was found in him alone. 
and he could be trusted. And commanding us to deny ourselves and seek him. God isn't keeping us from joy. He is inviting us to joy. I've said before that joy is what you'll get if God is what you want. But we can flip this around as well. God is what you'll get if joy is what you want. As John Piper has famously put it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Notice verse 10 and 11. These verses are enormously important. Both Peter and Paul in the New Testament quote these verses as grounds for Jesus' own resurrection because they understand the logic of these verses. They, they quote these as the proof uh, of why it was necessary for Jesus to be, ro- ro- rose, to be risen, risen from the dead. If God's promises are true, you see, if, he is, if, if God is intent and he comes through on what he intends to do to deliver us to himself, the source of all joy, then in the end, even death could not stand in his way. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus died importantly because he already knew this joy, because of the joy that was set before him. And God raised Jesus. He rescued the Holy One from corruption so that we might have the same joy. Jesus died and was raised, not simply that we would have heaven, although that it was what he fully intends to deliver us to, but that we would have him. And he will let nothing stand in the way, not even death. And I have to say this to those who are, uh, many of us who call ourselves Christians. Some of us, we have thought, we've conceived of the future, the end of all things, as the hope is being with our loved ones. The hope is being in heaven where there is no death or sorrow anymore. Praise God, that is true. But the point of heaven is God. And if your delight, your desire, what drives you to Christ is not a desire for God, but something else, that desire can't last for long. And we have to begin to wonder, why are we in this in the first place? We may find ourselves to be more of an older brother. We might find ourselves to be the one who is actually far off from God and thinks they're close. If God is not who we want, if he, is, if he is the necessary step on getting what we really want, we may not have understood the gospel at all. Joy awaits those who will find their joy in God. Not just the joys of his hand, but the joys of his face. Joy is what you'll get if God is what you want. God is what you'll get if joy is what you want. Our assurance is in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what it accomplishes. It's what we're all in need of. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that you do not need to give us joy. Even the taste of joy that we have now. We're, many of us are leaving for lunch. We're going to go hang out with people that we love. We're going to spend an afternoon watching shows that we 
um, and joy as well, Lord. There's, there's all sorts of things we're going to fill our days with, things that we have trusted to bring us happiness, and we've missed what they're preaching. You are the source of everything we're looking for. And I confess I've, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, I've wanted the fruit over you. Lord, I've, I've become convinced that you stand in the way of my joy. You cannot be trusted with my future, and that's just reprehensibly wrong. All of us are left crying, Lord, if we believe. Help me with my unbelief. Lord, we know that joy has a clarifying power in our decisions. It roots us and grounds us in the changing circumstances of life. It is our supreme treasure. And Lord, we know that it's making a people who when they delight in Christ alone are made into something beautiful themselves. A people we get the front row seat to watch in. Lord, we... We know that none of these things are possible unless you are the one who wrote them. You're the one who gives them even the faith that we need to obey. And so we place ourselves in dependence upon you, confessing that we do not have joy full enough. Even those Christians in here, we needed to be reawakened. Would we see Christ? Christ is the beautiful one who shows us we, you, we can trust you and that you will deliver us body and soul to the to good things to deliver us over to you would we see Christ and the, the infinite lengths that he went to bring us there that we too might have the strength to deny small pleasures for a greater one we pray all these things for Christ's sake alone amen